Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that we could come this morning into your house. Uh, Lord, we may be much like uh, the psalmist Asaph in, in, the, in the psalm where he says that his foot almost slipped. Lord, he looked around at him at the world and it just didn't make sense. And then he came into the house of the Lord and then he could see clearly. Lord, I pray that that would be the case for us this morning. That as we open your word, that you would speak to us through it. Uh, speak to us clearly. Challenge us, O oh Lord, to see our lives <clears throat> as you have created us. Lord, as you are, as you exist. And help us, Lord, to put our faith and our trust in you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, this morning as we turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it's probably the best known part of Ecclesiastes, at least the first eight verses, probably because of a song that was written by the folk singer Pete Seeger in the late 1950s, uh, a song entitled Turn, Turn, Turn. Most of you, at least if you're older, may remember the, the music group The Birds were the ones that sort of made that song very popular back in the 1960s. And it was based on the King James Version of Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. Now, the arrangement of the material by Seeger made the song something more like a, a, a peace anthem, you know, in times uh, back in the, the 60s where there was war and all the peace movements. He sort of sought to, to uh, twist the words to, for that meaning. But this morning, what I want us to do is to see what Solomon really meant by that. That really wasn't the intent that Solomon had. And I want us to see it's really broken up into two parts, verses 1 through 8. And then 9 through 15. And the first part that we look at this morning is really looking at life as we experience it. It's a, it's a great picture and it's done in the form of a poem in the first eight verses. And it, it, as you look at verses 2 through 8, you see that he uses 14 pairs of events or, or times or seasons. It's really, they're almost like polar opposites. Uh, a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. And he uses this uh, to uh, paint a picture that characterizes life and what our life looks like. Now, the pairs that he uses here is what's known as a merism. It's, it's a combination of two contrasting words to refer to the whole. And what I mean by that is this. Take, for example, the idea of a time to be born and a time to die. In other words, he's not just talking about there's a time for us to begin life and there's a time to end life. But a mirrorism is using those two extremes to describe all that happens in between, to describe all of life. So when he talks about a time to plant and a time to pluck up what's planting, he's also talking about a time to, to, uh, to, cultiv uh, to, to put on the fertilizer and to, to um, you know, take care of the weeds and to do all the, thing, the processes that are in between that. But what he wants us to see is, is that everything in life has its time or its season. And he says that in verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. And we all, that resonates with us as we read through this poem. We all experience the birth of new life and as well as death. We experience times of laughter, do we not? And times of mourning in our lives where things are, are more difficult, war and peace. 
But, but notice that as Solomon expresses uh, this description of life, he talks about the, the complexities of life. He describes life as full of, of good times. There's things that we read here and say, yeah, these are really good. But then even also the hard times. And then there are some things that he describes that really don't seem to be really good or bad. They're sort of in between. So he's sort of talking about the good and the hard and the in-between times. And he doesn't really sugarcoat life, but he shows us what life is like, even in the midst of a fallen world that's affected by sin. And, and everyone, to some extent, can, to, can resonate with, with what Solomon is saying here this morning, whether Christian or unbeliever or even atheist, you know, that God has uh, created life um, in this way with these different seasons and ebbs and flows in our life. And, uh, as a matter of fact, I've, I've even heard this passage used at funerals where it was done by a very liberal church that didn't really even seem to put much hope in, in God, but they found comfort in these words. And, th and that is because God has created the world in which we live to sort of have this rhythmic pattern built into it. Uh, Psalm 104, verse 19 says that God made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for settings. Um, in uh, Genesis 8:22, it says, in fact, that while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That within our creation that God has made, the sun knows to come up in the morning and to go down in the evening, which then shows the moon. And, and there's no one that understands this better than farmers. I sort of grew up in a farming community. And, and farmers understand the rhythm and the seasons that God has created. You never see a farmer try to harvest his crops in the spring. It just doesn't work. You don't plant in the fall. You know, it just doesn't work. You've got to do it according to the seasons. And even the Bible talks about this in Proverbs. Proverbs 20, verse 4 says, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Because it doesn't work that way. That's not the way that God has created the world. But just as the way that God has created the world to have sort of a, a rhythmic pattern, so he has created us in time and space to have a, a repeated rhythm of experiencing different events and times and seasons in our lives. And, and as we look at that, it's unfortunately, it's not as, 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 uh, as set in stone and as fast as it is with the world. And so there may be times of mourning and times of laughter that come at just sort of odd times. And as you look at even these first eight verses, there doesn't seem to be as much of a, you know, like step one, step two, step three, step four. It's just these are things that will happen in our lives at some point in time. And so people will oftentimes look at these things and see the randomness of life. And sometimes that will cause confusion in some individuals. Maybe some even become angry as they, they watch relationships sort of come and go in their life. They want maybe a significant other and maybe they've been with many different people in life, but they've just not found that person. Or maybe the same with their job or other things. And, 
And so because the events in life that Solomon describes are things that are, are beyond us and beyond our control, you know, we need to understand that, that we don't necessarily choose when these things happen. How many people in here chose when to be born? That wasn't your choice. That was your parents' choice. Actually, ultimately, that was God's choice, but that, that wasn't your choice. And it's not going to be your choice as to when you will die or when you will mourn. If it were up to us, we would eliminate some of these things on this list, will we not, if we had control? But, but we don't. And so life may seem rather random uh, to people at, at, at some times. And, and so as they look at marital breakups or the loss of a child or the loss of a job, or broken friendships, or betrayal by family members, or close friends. Uh, people that live under the sun not only find these things painful, but oftentimes meaningless and fruitless. They mean nothing. And so to someone who believes in a cosmic universe, which is simply operating according to a random, naturalistic, and personal force of nature, what good can come of some tragedies? And so we, we see sort of that, that sense of, of bewilderment and confusion even in our existence. And, and oftentimes uh, people will take and, and read only this poem. Like I said, even, even uh, secular people will use these first eight verses, but they don't get a good picture of what it means because they separate it from what comes afterward in verses 9 through 15, where we see God's sovereignty in the midst of life's circumstances. Uh, we see a hint of this even in the first eight verses, even though God is not really mentioned in these verses. Uh, you notice that the Solomon sort of changes his terminology a little bit. One of the terms that he has used a lot is what? Life under the sun, right? He, he's, he talks about that over and over. Life under the sun, life under the sun. But here, in this time, he uses the phrase life under what? Heaven. Now, many commentators will say, well, that, that's just, you know, that's sort of equivalent to life under the sun. And, and I think in some ways that's, that's true, that it, it, it is maybe similar to that. But, but I also think that he uses, he makes that shift for a particular reason. He's looking at life not just through the narrow restriction of an earthly horizon of life under the sun, but he begins to factor in God's sovereign rule over everything. Um, think about what the psalmist says in Psalm 115, verse 3. Memorize this verse if you, if you haven't already. It's short. And it's just powerful. It says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And so as he talks about that life under the sun, he thought, he, Solomon seems to be emphasizing the reality that, that God is the one who rules over all. That we are not in charge. We do not control these seasons in our lives you know, we can't just say, well, that's just the way that things go, but instead that God sovereignly oversees these things. But we see that even more clearly as we look at verses 9 through 15. He starts out in verse 9, um, and he talks about the subject of work, which he had talked about before. And he says, what gain has the worker from his toil? 
And you see Solomon in his ongoing quest to find meaning in life, the preacher wanted to know what kind of return he would get on his investment of time and effort. And knowing how hard people work, he said in verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. But he really wanted to know, is it still worth it? And some might say no, because they resist God's control over their time and eternity. And they would rather set their own agendas. Do you not know people like that? They say, I am the master of my destiny. I am the one that controls what it is that, that I do. But Solomon could see the beauty of God's sovereignty over the seasons of life. Not only is there a time for everything, but God always does things just at the right time. And so the preacher praised God for, for this beautiful timing. Look at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Solomon realizes that not only is God's timing perfect in the way he made the world in the first place, but also the way in which he has ruled over that creation since the, time, since the beginning of the creation of the world. The seasons of, of nature and the patterns of human activity are under the sovereign superintendence and providential care of God. Brothers and sisters, do you believe in the timeliness of God, not just for the world in general, but for your case, your life in particular? Do you trust His timing for the seasons of your life? You know, people often criticize God for being too late or too early, but in retrospect, many discover that His Timing was just perfect. And maybe you said that, you know, yourself uh, as you've gone through the circumstances of life. You've just been very frustrated with God because you wanted something and you just knew it was the right thing and God did not give it to you. And then later on you're like, oh, now I see. I see what God was doing and his time is perfect. Maybe we wanted God to open a door in our life regarding a relationship. But because God closed that door, we ended up going in a di different direction, which turned out to be the right direction all along. And we, we see that after the matter, after the fact. Uh, this week, I, I read of someone who was supposed to be at the top of the World Trade Center on 9-11. But because someone had double booked a room... His company had to relocate their meeting, which meant that he was not in the tower when the terrorists attacked on 9-11. It's all in the timing. And rather than insisting on having everything run according to our schedule, we need to learn to trust God's timetable. I mean, think about God's timetable. And I wish I had the, the, the time to go through the scriptures and show you all the different places that talks about time. But I, it struck me this week as I was reading some of those, uh, just even how it talked about the Savior was who was born, as it says in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come. When the time was right, God sent his Savior. And even talking about Christ dying on the cross for our sins, Paul talks about in Romans 5.6, uh, how he did so at the right time. 
God has a beautiful sense of, of timing. But knowing that God is in control doesn't necessarily mean that we always understand or appreciate His timing. Often we don't, and it can be very frustrating for us. Even as Christians, we wrestle with that, as I, as I just said. So having affirmed the beauty of God's sovereignty, sovereign authority over time, the preacher now points out what appears to be a dilemma under the sun, life under the sun, and that is that God has set eternity in our hearts. Look at verse 11. And he has put eternity into man's heart. You see, here the preacher finds himself caught between time and eternity. On the one hand, God has made us that we are to live forever. And thus, we have a desperate longing for the never-ending life with God. That is built into every single person, whether they're a Christian or not. They are made in the image of God. The trouble is, is that we are still living in a time-bound universe. There's a huge gap between our present mortality and our future destiny. The eternity in our hearts gives us a desire to know what God has done from the beginning to the end. Each of us is born with a deep-seated desire, a compulsion, if you would, to know the character and the composition and the meaning of the world in which we live and to discern its purpose and its destiny. We, people may not recognize that what they are desiring is God, but there is something in them in which the things in this world that they do do not satisfy them. And I don't care how wealthy they might be. I mean, how many times have you heard stories of people that had it all? They had success and they had money. And you look at them and you think, I want to grow up and be like them. And yet, as you talk with them, as you hear interviews, if they're a famous person, you realize they're empty. It means absolutely nothing. And I think it's interesting that science and faith are so often set up as opposites of one another. But science really demonstrates this point. Science, that desire to understand the world in which we live and, and, and to seek to uh, understand human behavior, to understand why the world is as it is, why the sky functions as it is, all these things that God has created, there is this insatiable hunger to understand the world in which we live. But as finite creatures living in a fallen world, there are so many things that we, we don't understand. And not only do we not understand, but we cannot understand. Uh, look at, uh, at verse 11. It says, no matter how hard we look, we cannot find. We cannot find out by, by learning. We cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, the Lord does reveal certain things to us. We've seen that over time as God shows us you know, we talk about advances in medicine, but all those things are just God revealing those things to us. But he still puts limits on us because he wants us to understand that there is a difference between the creature, the creator and the creature. And we are not God's equals. We are dependent upon him. So while God has this complete view, our view is very limited and what happens oftentimes is we're wanting to pass beyond just this fragmentary knowledge and discern the fuller meaning of life and the things that go on. Some people become very frustrated 
and, and leave God out entirely of the formula and just to seek to come up with their own interpretation of the universe and life and meaning. And that's where science has failed. Science is not bad. Science can help us to understand the world in which we live. But unfortunately, science has biasly said, but we're going to take God out of that because that can't be part of the picture. And so they don't get a true picture of this world in which God has created. But, but knowing that we're caught between time and eternity can help us actually find our way to God. Some people look at this verse and say, God has put eternity in our hearts you know, the, the sense of longing for something more, something greater than ourselves. And they think that is just a cruel joke by God. But actually God does that to bring us to him. You know, up to this point in his quest, Koheleth, the preacher, has failed to find anything on earth that can fully satisfy his human heart and his mind. But there, but... Uh, this still leaves open the possibility of finding satisfaction in God uh, who is in heaven. So rather than giving up on our desire for understanding, we should conclude instead that our longing for eternity proves that we were made for another world. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I know I used a quote from him last week, but he just says some really good things. And uh, this week he talks about that, that longing. And he said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. Can you relate to that? Maybe a desire that this world cannot satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to, to arouse it to suggest the real thing. That You see that that hungering in our souls for something more is to direct us towards God. And God has put the beauty of eternity into our hearts so that we will find our way to Him. Our deepest longings will never be satisfied until we come to a personal knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the beginning and the end. I, I love uh, what Charles Bridges says as he talks about our relationship with Christ. He says, I have found more in Christ than I ever expected to want. Listen to that. Think about that. I have never found more in Christ than I ever expected to want. In other words, before we come to Christ, we have sort of this pea brain level of understanding of this creation. But as we come to know Jesus, as we come to know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we understand His world, we realize that our hearts want more, that God created us for more. And so as we come to Christ, we find more in Him than we ever expected thought we would ever desire but God says that he's not only put eternity in our hearts but he also has created us so that we might do uh, several things first of all that we might do God's business and that second we might trust in his sovereignty he starts verses 12 and 14 with the words, I perceived, or if you're using the New American Standard, it says, I know, or, or I understand. 
And, and he says first that we should take whatever time we have been given and use it joyfully in the service of God. We should do God's business. In verse 12, he said, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. You see, back in verse 10, the preacher talked about the business that God has given to the children of man. And here, he tells us how we're to go about that business. That we're to do so joyfully. That we are to do so energetically with gratitude to God for the pleasure of serving Him. Now, at first glance, some may read this incorrectly and think that Solomon is being pessimistic when he said, I perceive that there is nothing better for them to do in other words, um, you know, uh, as if we should do the best we can because there's nothing better to do. So I guess we'll just have to make the best of a bad situation. But that's not what he's talking about. He actually means this in a very positive way. If you look at it, the terms that he uses in these verses are very positive. He talks about eating and drinking and good things in life. He encourages us to do good. And most importantly, he reminds us that these things are a gift of God. To man, So when he says that there's nothing better than doing God's business, he's not settling for something second best, but he's telling us that there is meaning and joy in the regular things of everyday life. So as we encounter these seasons, as we encounter these different events in our life, some that knock our feet out from under us, some of us that cause us to rejoice that in all these things we are to uh, do the work that God has given for us to do. One commentator suggested, he said, you know, if you really want to understand this passage he's, and, and to apply it, he said, I encourage you to put it in the first person and to use it as a sort of a job description as such. And, and so if you take verses 12 and 13 and read it that way, you say, I perceive that there is nothing better for me than to be joyful and to do good as long as I live. Also, that I should eat and drink and take pleasure in all my toil. This is a gift of God to me. And I think what that reminds us is that even though we live in a fallen world that is affected by sin, there is still beauty, there is still God's grace, there is still God's mercy in this world. Do you see the world that way? I mean, all you have to do is go out in Kansas and look at a sunset. And see the beauty of that. And I do this often. I look at that and I think, wow! And this is what it looks like in a fallen world. I wonder what a sunset looks like in the created world. But there is still beauty. There is still wonderful things. And we need to be reminded of that. That God has given us a task to be joyful and to do good as long as we live. But do we believe that? Do you see God's goodness even in the midst of this fallen world? Imagine uh, how that might change our perspective as individuals as we seek to live before the Lord. Or even as a church as we seek to live before the Lord. Of the things we do, we do joyfully. The preacher tells us to be joyful. No matter how bad the circumstances may be. Whether through the natural hardships of life or the harm done to us by others. Or maybe even through the painful circumstances of our own rebellious sin. 
in every situation, there is a way for us to glorify God. And this should give us joy. Until the time comes for us to leave the, this earth, we must spend our time wisely using it for Jesus. I love uh, what the Presbyterian pastor and theologian Thomas Boston once said to his congregation in Scotland. Listen to this. He said, Each generation has its work assigned to it by the Sovereign Lord. And each person in the generation has his also. And now is our time. We could not be useful in the generation that went before us. For then we were not. Nor can we be useful personally in that which shall come after us. For then we shall be off the stage. Do you hear what he's saying? We are in the, God has placed us in this generation to do work. We were... We could not have been helpful to a previous generation because we weren't born yet and we won't be here on this earth and the generation after. Now is our time. Let us not neglect usefulness in our generation. God has given us a work to do. But he tells us that in that we need to trust his sovereignty. Um, he says that uh, let God be God, reverently accepting his sovereignty over time uh, and space, he says in verses 14 and 15, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. You know, when he says whatever God does, the preacher most likely is thinking back to the beginning of the chapter when he says there is a season for everything and a time for every matter under heaven. What God does includes everything that he does, but also the timing of what he does as well. He is sovereign over the times and the seasons, and whatever he does will endure, and no one can add to it or subtract from it um, forever. And as you think about your life, let me ask you, is the absolute rule of God a source of hope or a source of discouragement? As you think about your life, is the absolute rule of God, His sovereign rule over your life, a source of hope or a source of discouragement? I had a friend, a good friend, um, who loved the Lord, and he had a daughter who uh, suddenly passed away. She, she had an episode, and they took her to the hospital, expecting to run some tests, and she died. And uh, I, I, I told him, I said... You know, how tragic. It was awful. But I said, but you know, understanding it in the context of a sovereign God who does everything for a purpose. That young lady had had a hard life. And she was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And she no longer had to struggle. She was a, an adult. She had a daughter. And, uh, and, and, but she no longer had to struggle in this life. And uh, but but my friend couldn't see that, you know, God's absolute rule in his life was not an encouragement, but it was a discouragement because he expected that the Lord should not have given him such a difficult life in life. Well, Ecclesiastes gives us the answer when it tells us why God does what he does. 
He doesn't give us the specifics of why he does what he does, but he says in verse 14 that he does so that the people may fear before him. God desires and he brings these things into our lives so that we might fear him, that our hearts might be drawn to him. To fear God is to rest our lives on the only solid foundation for time and eternity. To fear God is to trust in His foreknowledge, to believe He knows all things, including our present joys and our trials, all things in the future. To fear God also is to believe that He is still in control, even when we can't see it or we don't understand what it is that He's doing. I like the illustration that the early church father, Didymus the Blind, used um, to explain this. He said, we as Christians are a lot like passengers on a large ship. He said, we never meet the captain. We don't even know his name. And yet we know that he is there at the helm to steer the ship. And in the same way, why we can't see God and we don't know why he's doing we can trust him because we know he is at the helm and he has our good in mind. Do we believe in the doctrine of God's sovereignty this morning? Can we accept that God is, is really God and that we have been called to fear him as his maker? Far from discouraging us into giving up, knowing that God is in control of everything from here to eternity encourages us to keep pressing on. Michael Eaton explains how trusting God's sovereignty helps us live the Christian life. He said the fear of God that Kohela, the preacher, is talking about, he says, is not only the beginning of wisdom, as we hear from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it is also the beginning of joy, of contentment, and of an energetic and purposeful life. Is that where you are this morning? Is that how you would describe your life? That it is one of joy and contentment and energetic and purposeful life. The preacher wishes to deliver us from a rosy-colored, self-confident, godless life with its inevitable cynics and bitterness and from trusting in wisdom, pleasure, wealth, and human justice or integrity. You see, he wants us to see life the way it is, as Eaton says. But Eaton goes on and he says he wishes to drive us to see that God is there, that he is good and generous, and that only such an outlook makes life coherent and fulfilling. If you want to understand the seasons of your life, they come and go, the woes and the glories, you only can do so as you see yourself in the hands of a sovereign God who loves you. So where are you this morning? You know, maybe you're living as if God doesn't exist and what you need is a relationship with Him. But maybe you know God, but you've been battling with the time restraints of your life. You're trying to control the seasons of your life to somehow control them and give your life a sense of meaning and so you're trying to do all these things and you're trying to work all these things out yourself. God calls you to come though and to rest in Him. Matthew 11, 28 through 29. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, this is a, a gospel call 
This is a call to come and to trust Jesus Christ. And I know that many of you have done that today already, but it's still a good reminder, even as Christians, to take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Brothers and sisters, rather than insisting on having everything run according to our own schedule, we need to learn to trust God's timetable. As I said before, God is the one who created time and he sovereignly oversees it. He sent the Savior who was born when the fullness of time has come and he died for our sins at just the right time. God's timing is beautiful and we must trust him in that. Let's bow our heads for a time of silence this morning. Lord, we thank you so much. Your word is so blunt and so um, in our face, in a sense, to show us that you are a God that understands our existence and the things that we wrestle with day in and day out. And I pray, oh God, that you would draw our hearts ever closer to you to understand that that your timing is beautiful in, in everything that you do in your time. It is perfect. And that you sovereignly oversee these things and that we could rest in you, that you have created us, Lord, to draw us ever closer to you. Do that, we pray, O oh God, that you would this week uh, help us to lean in your everlasting arms, to know that you are God and that whatever you ordain is right. O oh God, I pray that you would not only help us to trust to rest in you and not to struggle and to fight against the circumstances of our lives. But Lord, that we might rejoice to know that we don't have to struggle. We don't have to try to somehow be free from, from time and, and try to conquer it. But it's something that we could rest in you. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.